0: Don't believe everything that you think. Kevin and I didn't coordinate this, but that would also be a very suitable summary of what Paul has to say here. We're in 1 Corinthians in chapter 3, and we're, we're kind of coming to the end here in the end of chapter 3. We're coming to the end of this, this argument that Paul has been making starting uh, around the, be- the middle of chapter 1 after he clears his throat. Uh, he addresses the issue going on in the church at Corinth Which is that there are divisions. And the divisions that are uh, to be found in the church of Corinth are there uh, because people are being absolute jerks to one another. Uh, They're being jerks in a number of ways. And one of the fun things about 1 Corinthians is you find out all the many ways that people can be jerks. But um, right here, what he's addressing is the fact that people are being factious. People are deciding that they want to follow one particular leader over another. These leaders, these teachers, haven't asked people to do that. Uh, people have, have got, made, made, these, made these factions on their own, and the, the unity of the body of Christ in Corinth is being threatened by the fact that folks are more worried about whether they're on Team Paul or Team Apollos or Team Peter than they are about whether they are being faithful to follow what Jesus is calling them to do and to be. And the, the broader message that Paul is, is having to, to bring home here, and he does it uh, in, in indirect ways and he does it in direct ways, uh, is that, that wisdom, human wisdom, is like every other good thing that God has given us. It is something that can be used for good or for ill right? I mean, uh, you, you take, um, take food, right? You can, you can use food for good, right? Or you can use it for bad purposes. You can abuse it. That's called gluttony. You take sex. Sex is given to us. It's a very good thing that God gave us. We're going to talk a lot about it all fall. There's a whole book of the Bible that's about sex, and you can, you can use that well, or you can use that poorly, Just because something can be good, and just because something is worth pursuing, doesn't mean it can't be abused. It doesn't mean that that abuse can't lead to horrible results. And it seems that what's going on here in Corinth is you've got a bunch of people who not only are are being factious, not only are they following a particular teacher or a particular movement, but they think of themselves as being especially advanced spiritually because of that right they picked the best teacher and so they are the most spiritually advanced they pick the best teacher and so they're the most wise and paul says you guys have got it completely upside down in fact as as wise as you think you are you're you're idiots but more importantly The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. So much that makes sense to us is actually foolishness from God's perspective. Chapter 1, verse 20. Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of the world? I mean, in the wisdom of, of God, the world, through its wisdom, didn't know Him. But God was pleased through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Gentiles demand wisdom. But we preach Christ and Him crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But guess what? God doesn't really care. If you think it's foolish, that's a reflection on you, not on Him. For the foolishness of God, that the quote-unquote foolishness of God, is wiser than man's weak wisdom. What man sees as, as weak in God is actually stronger than what human beings think of as strong. And so here in chapter 3, toward the end, he says, don't, don't deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks that he's wise, by the standards of this age. He should become a fool so that he may really become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Here we have one of these one-time things. Is the only time in the New Testament that the book of Job is cited. Only time. Paul does it here. You may remember, I'm going to spend a little time here in Job. Uh, You may remember the story. Job is a righteous man. He fears God. He follows Him faithfully. He's generous to the needy. He is uh, faithful in all of his business dealings. And God has blessed him abundantly. He's become prosperous. He has a large family. He is happy. He's healthy. And Satan comes along and says to God, well, that's only because he's so blessed. The only reason that he, he still worships you is because you blessed him so much. Take away all those blessings and he'll curse you. God says, all right, well, let's put this to the test. And he does. God allows for Job to lose his health and to lose his children, to lose his wealth, and to not lose his wife. Not that that by itself would necessarily be a a, a special curse, it's just that she basically spends all of her time telling him, look, would you just go ahead and curse God so you can die? Because I want to move on. Now, let me take a moment and just say, it may be that we will never meet Job. Right? It it may be. In fact, I think it's probably more likely than not that that in the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. It is kind of a biblical equivalent of guy walks into a bar, um, or or you have in in uh, in, in uh, philosophy, you know, in Plato. If you remember reading Plato, you have. These scenes where you where where people come together and they have these discussions sometimes it's basically um Socrates you know basically talking and talking and talking and talking, and then somebody you know making brief remarks it, i mean that's sort of the way Plato structures his writing, other times you get more interaction I, I just I grabbed my copy of the Gorgias off the shelf, which is about rhetoric um and it's it some of this can be really really fun, like you have uh uh, the, the, so the main, the main interlocutors, of course, are Socrates and, and Gorgias, who is a teacher of rhetoric. And then you have these other, like, side characters who are just there to kind of keep the conversation going. And then once in a while, they'll, like, chip in just to make sure everybody everybody thinks it's a really good idea that they're doing what they're doing. So here, uh, uh, at, uh, Cariphon says, you, you can hear from the noise people here are making, Gorgias and Socrates, that they want to hear whatever it is you have to say. As for me, I hope I'm never so busy that I have something to do which takes priority over a discussion as good and well-argued as this one, and that makes me miss it. Callicles says, I couldn't agree more, Cariphon. I should think I've heard as many discussions in the past as you too, but I can't remember when I've enjoyed one as much as yours. I'd be delighted even if you wanted to go on talking all day long. It's, it's like 50s-era radio ads, you know. But... Uh, But it could be it is not outside the realm of possibility. And, you know, I'm saying this as somebody who believes that the Word of God is, in fact, entirely inspired, that it's thoroughly trustworthy, that that God gave all of it to us for a reason. It could be that God inspired a, basically, a, a, a philosophical discussion in the form of people talking about this calamity that befell this guy because of a bet between God and Satan. Now maybe not. Maybe we there is actually a Job and and we will meet him but but maybe not. It, what's important here is is really not the characters, it's the ideas that are being talked about. And basically the whole setup here is provides an opportunity for Job and for his friends to basically talk about what's going on. How can we understand Job being punished in light of the fact that we know God is good and God is just. And, and, and we, we see Job, you know, he's sick, he's, he's uh, miserable. Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all of his troubles. They set out from their homes, met together, agreed to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And they sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights. And nobody said a word to him, because they saw now how great his suffering was. Right? Think of a friend of mine, a guy I knew whose, whose daughter died of cancer when she was four. And as he was reflecting on his experience of community through that, he said, you know, Job's friends were doing great for a week. They're doing great until they open their mouths. Now, in their defense, one of the reasons they open their mouths is that Job opened his mouth. That literally, Scripture says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And so they said, now, hang on, Job. I mean I know you you were saying that you're righteous you've always done the right thing you've walked with God faithfully but obviously you must have done something wrong right I mean I mean you were wealthy you were healthy you had all these all these kids your wife was kind of annoying but otherwise things were good for you but then clearly you did something wrong. You must have brought this on yourself somehow. And Job says, I didn't. I didn't do anything different from how I've always been doing it. I haven't set anything unclean before my eyes. I've, I was always generous to the poor. I always dealt honestly in my business dealings. And, and I made all the right sacrifices. I mean, I, I've been a devoted follower, and I've, been, I've lived well. And, and then this happened to me. Wow, Job, now you must have done something. And this basically goes on for about like 30 chapters. And then in comes Elihu. This is kind of one of the reasons that I hope that this is just sort of a story set up so that you can have this interaction because I kind of hope there isn't an Elihu because he seems really obnoxious and I don't want to have to spend eternity with him. Elihu shows up. By the way, he's, he's never mentioned anywhere until he actually shows up. Elihu, this this kind of young whippersnapper, he got angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God, and he got angry with the three friends because they hadn't been able to win the argument. right? So like, basically at the end of chapter 31, um, they all stopped talking because they'd kind of come to an impasse. Nobody was able to convince anybody else. Elihu is, is, is saying, look, you, you know, I, I, think, I think we need a better debater is the problem, and so let me step up and debate against Job. He goes on for several chapters, and then probably the most magnificent response to Elihu is the fact that nobody talks to him. <laughs> he goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter, and then he finishes, and like, nobody responds to him. Then, then God speaks. And God comes in and He doesn't speak to Elihu. God says, no. He answered Job out of the storm. He says, hey, Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I I, I was there. I don't remember you being there. Basically, He God comes in and just says to everybody, shut up. Really. Just shut up. Yeah, you're trying to make sense of this. You're trying to make sense of me. You're trying to understand. But you mostly right now, you guys just need to shut up. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. At the end, Job finally says, after God speaks, this is the one point where anybody changes their mind in the whole 40-some chapters of this book. Job replied to Yahweh, I know that you can do all things, that no plan of yours can be thwarted, And you asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? The fact is, Lord, I spoke of things that I didn't understand. I spoke of things that are too wonderful for me to know. Not just things that are too difficult for people who aren't that smart like me, but things that are too wonderful for a human being to know. He said, listen now, I will speak. I'll question you and you'll answer me. Lord, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's kind of ironic that in our canon, the book of Job is the first of all of the wisdom books. Right, So you get the Torah and then you get the histories and you get the wisdom books and then you get the prophets. It's the first of all the wisdom books and basically the point of it is to say human wisdom is of limited value. It's Not to say it's of no value. Not to say that we don't seek to understand And certainly Paul, I mean, not only is Paul quoting Job, Paul actually quotes from a speech that Eliphaz gives. But Paul is quoting one of the bad guys, so to speak, in an entirely positive way. What these guys say makes a lot of sense. I mean, if, if I, I, it got lost in all one of, one of my moves, but my old Bible, the first one I had, had all kinds of stuff, and Job highlighted. I feel kind of silly about it now, because I realize, like, Supposed to take all this stuff with a grain of salt, but there's plenty that's that's good. There's plenty of wisdom, but you have to know its place, and you have to know when and where to deploy it. You know, conversations about theodicy, about God's justice, are probably not well-suited to somebody who's undergoing tragedy. And exalting human wisdom as a means of gaining debating points over your fellow believers in your community is also not likely to be very productive. Which seems like exactly what was going on in Corinth. as we talked about last week. The stakes here are high. Exalting human wisdom over what God has revealed. Choosing to use that as a way of winning your fights. Of clubbing other people over the head. Choosing to use that as a way Of Dividing the community for the sake of you making sure you're on top. That's not building the church. That's directly undermining it. You yourselves, Paul says, to this church in Corinth, this messed up church in Corinth, you are God's temple. God's Spirit lives in you. God's temple is holy. You are that temple. So if anyone God destroys God's temple, God's going to destroy him. Anything that we place above God, anything that we exalt above God, anything we would presume to use to correct God, whether it be our understandings of human wisdom, our understandings of justice, our understandings of righteousness, our understandings of what we can be sure God would do and wouldn't do, any of these, any of these, is only going to divide and destroy the church, not build it up. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so we build on that. And we trust that God will, in His way and in His time, give us the guidance we need. And if sometimes it doesn't make sense to us, as often it doesn't, then we always have the choice to say, well, we can go with what makes sense to us. We can go with what seems good in our eyes. We can go with human wisdom. Or we can decide that Maybe God does know what he's doing after all. I don't want to I don't want us to miss the importance of what Jen mentioned this morning in the in the bulletin. That for the first time ever, I'm pretty sure, we hit our numbers for giving. We like have never done that. When when the economy was really strong, when we had wealthy people giving a lot of money when we had people outside the church who supported us. We never made the numbers. I I think our our feeling as elders is that this is one of the ways in which God is conveying, conveying to us that, yes, we are doing something that's thoroughly counterintuitive. We're an independent church. We moved outside of where pretty much all of our people live, and we're helping a mainline denomination to start a new church. Where have you ever heard of that? Right? We thought, well, maybe this is just crazy enough. God might be in it. we feel like he's confirming that. There are a whole lot of opportunities along the way for us to say, yeah, that just doesn't make sense. So we're not going to do it. But quite often we said that doesn't make sense, which is why we think maybe it's exactly what we're supposed to do. We'll see. But our, our story at New Hope, I think, has always been, once we, we had our plans, when we started, we knew what we were going to be doing. We had our projections, and, and then God somehow declined to um, do what we had expected Him to do. And When we got over the habit of being angry at God about that and demanding that He bless our plans... Uh, when we decided instead that we would try to pay attention to what he was doing and follow that, when we decided that we would turn away from the wisdom of the people who had written on how you plant a church and what numbers you should expect when, then we found, for one, we were a lot less frustrated and a lot less annoyed And we also found that God grew us, not in the numerical way we expected, but he certainly grew us to be a deep and a stable and a healthy congregation. And for that I'm very grateful. I think what we have sought to do is to build well on the one foundation of Jesus Christ. We don't try to be stupid, but we also don't try to be too smart either. Because the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that we would always be people who seek you first. That we would always be people who seek to hear from you rather than hearing from our best selves. That we would seek your wisdom, not the wisdom of fallible human beings. Pray that we would be a church where we follow faithfully as you lead us. Even and perhaps especially when it doesn't seem to make sense what you're doing. We pray that the result of this would be that your name would be glorified. That your church, your big C church, not just this congregation, but your whole church would be built up. That we would see the further incursion of your kingdom into enemy territory. We ask all this in the mighty name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.